welcome to Minute 11 of Season 3 of Move Your Up Minute, the daily podcast where we yippee our way through the 1988 Bruce Willis action flick, Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me today is Alan Sanders of The Wilder Ride and of a whole bunch of other things, but he'll, he'll maybe he'll talk about those, who knows. So, welcome to the show for this season. Rob, thank you so much for having me back. I have had a blast the last two seasons, and so looking forward to... One of my all-time favorite action flicks and one that I must watch every single holiday season. Okay, that's great. I, I, I watch it more than just holiday season. You know, for me, it's a, it's a go-to movie. I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen it. I've seen it probably over 50 times, if not more. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's a priceless number. <laughs> I, I, know, I pretty movie, much know it by heart. This movie is very much like Raiders of the Lost Ark and a handful of others that I, at any point in time, if there's nothing I can think of to watch, I can always go to it. So very similar to you. I've seen it at least 50 times, but I'm probably closing it on more than 100 because I'll, I'll watch it at least three, four times a year since it's yeah. come out. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably closer to that also, but I have no way of knowing. There's there's absolutely no way. So why don't you first tell tell me, what when did you first see this movie? Do you remember? Do you remember your first watch saw, of this? Yes, I saw it actually in the theater. It was Ooh, uh, it was, fun, a, fun, it was fun. Yeah, I saw it in my, in my uh, high school senior year, and it was a movie that I remember a lot of people were talking about how the Moonlighting guy, and I never watched much of Moonlighting, and I've never even gone back to watch Moonlighting, but I didn't know a whole lot about Bruce Willis, except he didn't really have much in the way of a track record so far in film. And I knew that there was some, there were folks saying, well, you got to give it a chance. Like, just give it a chance. So I was like, okay, well, fine. I mean, it's getting some initial good reviews. But I remember now, looking back, it didn't get the kind of hype until weeks after it was out. And then people started, like, kept going and then kept going and kept going. But, um, yeah, just saw it in the theater, and I was blown away. I just could not believe that this movie could just keep going and keep going and then escalate and yet hold me the whole time still had humor, still had everything that you want. And that I think we've come to expect in the typical summer action movie. But I, I remember thinking this guy is perfect because he's not Stallone. He's not Schwarzenegger. He's not Van Damme. He's not your typical at that time, eighties muscle bound action heroes. He's an everyday ordinary guy. And suddenly I could have been John McClane, the guy that came with the movies with me, my brother. And anybody could have been John McClane. And I think part of that is the reason this movie just became an instantaneous hit. Besides great direction, great acting, great writing, great villain. It had an everyday, ordinary hero. It wasn't a buff action hero. At least that's how I look at it. Right. No, for sure. Completely. I, I completely agree with you on that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why th this this movie actually spawned a whole genre of films. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that uh, later later in today's episode. But but still, it's just amazing because you look at Bruce Willis, and Bruce Willis obviously looks very different now than he did then because he has buffed up. You know, but when this came out, he was, you know, he he wasn't your typical, you know, Stallone or or Van Damme or or uh, Schwarzenegger or anything like that. So, you know, it it really worked well. I mean, this is one of the movies that I'm so upset that I never saw in the theater. You know, I would love to be able to find a way to see it in the theater again. Now, do you keep track of things like the Fathom events and other other film entities that try to bring back, you know, nostalgic movies in the cinema sometimes for only a weekend? Because 
they do, but, but, but they don't. Eight. They do do. In, they don't do it in Israel. So you know, I'd, I'd have to travel to the states for that. <laughs> oh, they don't have anything over the pond there. Ah, it's no, 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 no. I've had a chance since the pandemic, which you know, whatever, it's over and done. But um, multiple times, I've had a chance to go to the movies when they were showing classic movies that I never saw on the big screen, like Jaws, like um, the first Alien movie. Um, Star Trek Two, I actually saw on the big screen when I was a kid, but I had a chance to go revisit it. It's awesome to go back, and this is one of those movies I get to at least say I saw on the big screen, and I would go do it again. I would definitely, oh, wow. just for the big screen extravaganza. Right, well, I mean, based on, we're, we're obviously recording this this uh, a few months earlier, but the week that, that, that everyone's listening to this, I'm actually in the States, so maybe I'll be able to try and find you know a showing of this somewhere. So I'm, I'm looking Excellent. forward to that. You never know. Maybe we'll we'll have to talk about that after. We'll we'll go into the green room between episodes, and maybe you'll you'll give me some hints as to how to okay. try and find, you know, a copy of it, a, a way of seeing it in the theater. You know, when I'm when I'm in New York, the, the week of the the eighteenth of of July. You know, who knows? Okay. That would that would be amazing if I could see that. You know, the only like Empire Strikes Back is also the only Star Wars movie I haven't seen more than multiple times in the theater, and I've never seen it at all in the theater. I missed it both. In the initial run, I, I didn't get a chance to see it. And then when it was re-released, I didn't see it. And then the special editions, I also missed it. And it's like, <laughs> See, that's my, of all the Star Wars films, including all the new ones, The Empire Strikes Back is my absolute favorite Star Wars film. And for those who were just, we're obviously, it's this gets released much later after the recording because you've got to make sure you've got everything all lined up. But I will tell you, as of the day we're recording here, a little little Easter egg, so people can go look it up. They'll know, oh, that's the day they recorded. Today, 40 years ago, 42 years ago, Empire Strikes Back debuted in the United States yes. on this very day. That's very true. I, I, I forgot about that that little tidbit that that's today. And when, you know, back to what we were just talking about, I was looking for places that, that are showing movies, you know, when I'm in the States. And, and I came across that the Empire Strikes Back is, being, is playing in a few places along with the music, you know, the music, the musical uh, orchestral company, but that's all in June. And I was like, eh, if only it would be a month later, I would go. There was like one in Washington. Like I was, I said I would drive to Washington to go see it, but it just won't work. <laughs> Three years ago, prior to everything going wonky, my wife as a Christmas present brought bought me, it was tickets for her and I date night. We went to the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra doing the entire score to the Empire Strikes Back shown on a big screen in Symphony Hall. Wow. And I will tell you, if you get the chance to do that, do it. Because I know the Empire Strikes Back inside and out. I know all of the swelling of the horns and the, yeah, the, and, and the, the violins. I had my eyes watered three or four times because something about the live music reverberating and hitting you and seeing these musicians create or recreate the score live as the movie's playing is a phenomenal experience i'm actually getting goosebumps as you tell me that um i've, I've only had I'll one send you, opportunity I'll a video clip oh cool i'll email you a video clip i saved on my phone of how they ended like the the ending music and i recorded a little bit on my phone just to show you the 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 the, the, the orchestra but i know they're expensive usually to get orchestra tickets but for something like that it, it's a it's a bucket list item you should all anyone who's listening do yes. it for your favorite movie because the score is suddenly not just your so favorite movie for any movie that if you can you know that's what it comes out. I I saw 
I've only been to one of those, and that was, I think, about four years ago. I saw Raiders, um, and it was great watching that. <laughs> you know, it was outdoor also, yeah, and it was it was just a lot of fun. It was in the middle of the summer, a lot of fun. I've had people say, well, it's the same score. I'm like, you just don't understand. It's like saying watching a movie versus being in a or seeing a play. The actors are right there. You feel the emotion in the room. You literally feel the yeah. music hitting you. And, and you were there, so you've experienced it too. It's a phenomenal experience. Yeah, no question about that. And, and I mean, you, you mentioned about the score of Empire. I mean, that's, that's a score I used, to, I used to go to sleep to that score. You know, I would have it playing on, it, on my CD player as I, was, as I was falling asleep, and it was, it was just great. I mean, as you said, I know all the swells and the, and the, and the horns and all that stuff, you know, like when I'm listening to it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. This but we probably should start talking I about Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, this is how you and I have so much fun talking movies because we have so many shared experiences. Because it's my favorite soundtrack or score from all of the Star Wars movies. It's my favorite film. And I had a chance to see it live. So, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So I guess two out of three. Two out of three for so, me. There you go. Uh, I, I want to get to the three. I'm, I'm looking for an opportunity to get to that three. You know. Do it. So. When you, I, it's not that it's not that it's not that I'm trying to stop myself from doing it. It's I need to have the opportunity. <laughs> I get the opportunity. I'm I'm there. No question about that. All right, so let's let's actually talk a little bit about Die Hard today. <laughs> a little bit. Okay. Why not? We get that. We get that. That's a. It's another yeah. movie I don't mind talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, so minute eleven begins with the uh, John De- Larroquette doppelganger giving instructions and ends. With McLean looking out at the view of a party. So I mentioned this on Friday that the actor who plays this guard, to me, looks like John Larroquette. You know, from Night Court. <laughs> I, I've always thought of mm-hmm. him as John Larroquette, which is really funny. You know, so I referred to him on Friday that way. I refer to him today and what he, he'll show up, I think, next week. And we'll talk about him a little bit then, too. And that's it. You know, he doesn't have that many parts in this movie, but... You know, he's st- it's still fun to look at him and say, oh, that looks like John Larica, who was obviously much more popular in 1988 and would not have taken a very small role as a security guard who, spoiler, doesn't make it through the rest of – doesn't make it beyond next week. Has that. <laughs> yeah. No, he uh, he, uh, he, he kind of gets fooled, uh, but we'll leave that for the, your next guest to talk about the guys walking in the lobby. <laughs> yeah. Well, just a hint, my next guest is actually someone who's never seen the movie, so we'll have to see what he has to say about it. That's you know what? That's going to be fun. That will be fun simply for you to have somebody who's being kind of, I don't want to say forced, but has it as an assignment of watching this and experience it because you're going to get a chance to. Then but he, he told me he's time. only going to watch. He's only going to watch these minutes. We'll we'll, we'll really? talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't want to get into it. I don't want to spoil for everybody who next week's uh, who next week's uh, guest is because it's it is someone that you know. So you okay. Know. We'll have to wait and see. I'm just—I'll be surprised if somebody has the intestinal fortitude to start the movie and stop, or only watch their minutes. That's going to be amazing. Well, that's the reason why I—he—he he gave me that as a caveat, and that's the reason <laughs> why I decided to give him one of the earlier minutes, hoping that he will actually, you know, get in, get intrigued by that by next week, <laughs> and find and maybe say, oh. You know, maybe I should finally go and see what what this movie is all about. Who knows? I, I think he's doing it on principle okay. at this point. You know. So, <laughs> all right. Did you see what I, what I just wrote to you? 
no, you popped something to me, but I heard something pop up in my, but I had my screen shrunk down so I could have the video oh. up. I just wrote, I just gave you, I just told you who it is, but, you know. Chat, oh, chat, uh, where's my chat bubble? There it is, chat. Uh, oh, really? Yes. I am, okay, I'm sure. <laughs> so was I. All right. We're so planting the Easter egg here for next week <laughs> that I cannot, I'll tell you, if you had given me 10 names, I would have immediately crossed this person off. Well, surely this person has seen it. I would have never even suspected that this would have been the person. So now I'm anxious to see next week or, or listen. Listen, <laughs> I am too, and I haven't recorded it yet. So we'll have to wait and see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So the, 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 the desk guard at this point begins this, this, this minute by answering John's question, but John told them that they have to go to the 30th floor. And his response is, oh, that's the party. They're the only ones left in the building. Now, if that was the case, why didn't he just tell them in the first place, go to the 30th floor? They're the only ones left in the building. <laughs> you know? <laughs> as many times as I've seen this movie, it has never made me pause to question why when he's like, uh, who are you here to see? Well, just punch the name in. Well, he could have just said, well, oh, they're the old. I mean, at the same time, who knows? Maybe uh, he, I mean, he's a security guard. Maybe he's not supposed to ask, you know, what are you doing here? I don't know. It's, but that is a really good question. Why, why <laughs> does he need father when there's only one party left in the entire building and it's only on one floor? Right. I mean, and one of the questions that we brought up last week, which, which we don't have an answer for is, is this a building solely for people of the Nakatomi Corporation or is it a Nakatomi building that, rents out space to other people and stuff like that. Now, the few, the last few seconds of, of Friday's minute, we got to see a sign on a door saying Merrill Lynch, which means that there's something uh, there. There are, there's at least one other company, you know, in the building, but you know, mm -hmm. is, uh, but if you look at, at the guard, his, he has, you know, the Nakatomi emblem on his, on, on his, uh, on, on his outfit or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, I, I will never know the answer to this as to whether because we, we don't really see other buildings, uh, other offices here, except for the Merrill Lynch that I that I came across yesterday or Friday. Yeah, the only thing I would say is I I think conceptually it is supposed to represent an entire building owned by the corporation. But in reality, the building no, in the L.A. Building. Yeah. was still. Yeah, it was still being constructed and was going to be a multi-use building. And I wouldn't be surprised if someone just didn't catch something. Do you, do, you, do you feel like it was left intentionally or was it so such a small detail that it just slipped by? I think it was a small detail that nobody would have thought that 34 years from now, someone is going to be doing a second uh, Movies by Minute podcast about this movie <laughs> and and maybe notice it. I, I my, If I remember correctly, when the, in the original one, they didn't notice it. The original podcast, you know, but uh, I'm, I'm I, trying not I to re-listen just... until after this comes out so that, you know, I, I won't regurgitate things that have already been said. You know, I'm trying My to. My guess would be that it was actually Merrill Lynch that they accidentally didn't or didn't think it was going to make the cut. And nobody really thought about it back in 1988 Yeah, probably uh, because it was mixed building. Um, but I think story-wise, it's supposed to be all Nakatomi because all of the floors above 30, when we'll see later in the movie, are server rooms and computer rooms, all designed for the Nakatomi building. We find that the the vault's on a different floor. His office is someplace else. So right. I feel like it's supposed to all be Nakatomi. Right. Okay. That that makes sense. That makes sense. 
But that's why I love catching these things. That's why I love catching these things. Of course you can. So back in back in a, a different career, I was with uh, IBM and we had a facility in L.A. that I had to fly out and, and manage some things out there. And while I was there, I had a free extra afternoon. I drove to this building, pulled up front where the cop will drive later. I did the circle around in my car. I got out, went inside, talked to the guard. Uh, this this black console. Were you giving him a, not uh, were you giving him a, bas- a basketball anecdote? No, I Worthy was not. Throws it to magic. Say... <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. I wonder. Um, I wonder if they would have, you know, arrested you just for saying that line as you walk into the security <laughs> guard. <laughs> I'm sure they were getting it a lot. I mean, at this point, the movie had been out for a while, so it wasn't like it was brand brand new. But obviously, I looked like a tourist. I'm looking. I'm like, you know, how you can tell a tourist in a town they're always looking up at everything. You know. Yes. <laughs> so. I did tell the guy, I'm like, look, I just want to take a look around. Die Hard is one of my all-time favorite movies. This black area where you see the security guard, the obvious that's built for the movie, that wasn't actually what I saw when I walked in. What I will tell you about, this entire lobby is identical. The elevators are identical. But when we get later in the week, I think, to one of the reverse shots, you'll see what looks like uh, as if where the elevators are, that there's another outlet as if you could keep walking deeper in the building. That's actually the back doors. They just keep it enough out of frame. I was shocked at how small the building actually felt once I was inside, that it doesn't just extend so much deeper. I guess because it's a movie and because we go up and down all these floors, you just assume it's much bigger and wider. But when I walked in, I was like, it wasn't nearly as big as I was expecting. But it was so cool to actually see I mean, it was the same tile work on the floor. It was the same kind of pouring of the walls, same light fixtures. It was like I was literally on the set because they really did shoot in the building. Wow. Now, when when you, you – know, the beginning of this this minute has the, the little graphic, you know, telling John that he needs to go to the elevators to the 30th floor. So do you think that graphic mm-hmm. is the real layout of the building since you've nope. been there? Again, uh, it just makes see. it look – it just makes it look a lot. Uh, it's it's actually at the zero second. It's the very right. first thing we see here. Right. Um, taking a look, the way it's designed, I would say not really. Okay. I mean, maybe. I, it's just really hard to tell. But it, uh, based on where it says where the elevators are and where supposedly their entrance is, it doesn't quite look the same. The, okay. the outside looks the same. The, That's the, fair. the outline, the uh, cyan color. But where they've kind of got the hallways, definitely not the same. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So then the the guard continues to say, he says, well, take the express elevator. Get off when you hear the noise. Now, have you ever been in an express elevator? You don't get to choose yes. where you get yeah. off. The idea of an express elevator is that you go, you know, from the ground floor to wherever. You know, it's not like you can say get you can, can't stop it wherever you want. Well, I thought, and now maybe it's different depending on some of the buildings, but like in New York that are much taller, the express elevator basically skips the first half floors. In other words, you will still be able to stop after a certain point. Like if it's, let's say, a 50-story building, the express elevator may go from the lobby. Immediately, the first floor you can go to is 26. Okay, Whereas that's the true. Other but, elevator- he said, but he says get off when you hear the noise. So it's not like you can push a button or you'd push a button, you'd push 30. But what do you mean get off where you hear the noise? You get off when the doors open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it comes down True. to. True. True. Here's the thing, though. I will tell you about the dialogue that I do like. As much as we can kind of poke at it, and it is a little – when you start to slow it down, 
you don't realize you're getting important little bits of narrative that come into play later. Yeah, of course. The fact that Completely. the only people on the 30th floor, nobody else is in the building. It's the only place where you're going to hear noise or something. Little things like that I love right. because you don't think about it until subsequent rewatchings. Right. As they say, Chekhov's elevator, you know. <laughs> so what what do you know about elevators? Um, Not a whole lot, actually. Well, I do. <laughs> when when do you think? Well, okay. <laughs> well, I do now. How's that? <laughs> so, so an elevator is a type of cable-assisted hydraulic cylinder-assisted or roller-track-assisted machine that vertically transports people or freight between floors, levels, decks of a building, vessel, or other structure. Okay, they're usually powered nowadays by electric motors that drive traction cables and counterweight systems such as a hoist through some pump hydraulic fluid to raise a cylindrical piston like a jack. So that's what basically moves people up and down, right? So okay. many buildings nowadays have legal requirements that if they're above a certain number of floors, they need to have because they need to have an elevator because of wheelchair access laws. Okay, who do you think was the first known reference? Where was the first known reference of an elevator? How far back do you think it would go? Now, again, I'm not talking about an electric elevator. I'm talking about the idea of using, you know, pulleys oh, and, and counterweights. It's got to uh, go back to uh, – it's got it's got to be a while because uh, you had dumbwaiters for staff to be able to load food and bring it up and just use hand pull um, right. chains or ropes. I can see what you're doing. No one else can. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry. I am hoisting. Do you not see I'm hoisting a, a rope? Um, I'm going to say what, maybe in the 15th or 16th century, or is it not, is it not quite that old? It's or is it older. It's <laughs> much older, much older. So the, 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 the first reference, the first known reference are in the works of the Roman architect, uh, Vitruvius, who reported that Archimedes built the first elevator probably in 236 BC. Holy crap. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. So now I'm just giving you well, a few examples. Archimedes is the guy that came up with the phrase, uh, you give me a lever, I can lift the world. If you give you me go. basically a fulcrum and a and a, and a something, a long enough, uh, whatever, lever, I can lift anything. There you go. Appar apparently, we now know why. Because <laughs> he thought of the idea of, of elevators. And so really it, cool. the Roman Colosseum, which was completed in 80 AD, had roughly 25 different elevators that were used to raise animals to the floor of the Colosseum. Each of these elevators were able to carry about 600 pounds, which is 270 kilograms, the, the weight of two, two lions, basically. Right. So they were, they wow. could, they could hoist them up 23 feet, which is seven meters. And they had eight men that would be pulling all these ropes in order to get them up there. In the 17th century, there were prototypes of what we would now think of as modern elevators that were installed into the palaces in both England and France. And Louis XV of France had what, what they called a flying chair that he built for one of his mistresses in the Chateau de Versailles in 1743, where she was able to be hoisted up. You know. So 
I mean, it's just amazing to think about it. You know, you have it, and most of most of these were in palaces and stuff like that. In the, you know, Ivan Kulibin installed one in the Winter Palace in Russia in 1793, and apparently he used the design that was originally uh, created by Leonardo da Vinci for this type of thing. Whereas we all know da Vinci had all these these far-reaching ideas that you know he, he thought of the idea of a helicopter, you know, <laughs> but only now. You know, it took them hundreds of years before someone was actually able to, to finally do that. So then I looked up about, okay, an express elevator. So what they tell me, what, what I found was an express elevator does not serve at all floors. Okay. What it does is it moves between the ground floor and the sky lobby. Okay. Or it moves from the ground floor or a sky lobby to a range of floors. I think a sky lobby is what you said. Like it gets to a certain platform. I think in like the World Trade Center, they had that. You know, where where basically you had, you know, the the first set of elevators. If you had to go up to higher things, you you go in the express elevators to let's say the thirtieth floor, and then from the thirtieth floor you would go up to second set of elevators. They didn't have elevators that would go all the way, you know, to the top from that, right? And so most right. most express elevators basically skip most of the floors. Again, that doesn't really answer here why he would tell them to, why he would tell him to get in the express elevator and and get off where you hear the noise. But that's. Uh, the, a, a separate issue. Now, something I found really interesting about about elevators is the fact that it, the social impact that it has. Now, if you think about it, most people in buildings beforehand, okay, who would live on the ground floors and who would live on the higher floors? Okay. Well, generally, it's a socioeconomic thing. The more the more money you had, you generally would be living on a higher floor. I would think that's the way it is today. That's not the way it was then. It used to be that that you know people had to when when you only had to climb upstairs you wouldn't have rich people have to climb upstairs the rich people would be on the ground floor so someone who had to pay you know someone who had less money would have to climb up to the top to the higher to the the higher <laughs> flights of stairs but nowadays because of the elevator they've actually reversed the social stratification and you know for instance now as you mentioned. Rich people live in the penthouse, where the the people who aren't as wealthy are on the lower floors. So I, I I found it to be really interesting that that the elevator actually was able to change the way that you know that the world looks at 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 buildings at you know where people live, you know from a social aspect. Okay, and it, and it makes sense because when you think about it, once you can get higher off the ground, you get less street noise, and then the higher up you get, when you start talking about larger, like skyscraper structures that um, are a more modern invention, now you've got breathtaking views. So of course that becomes what you're paying for. Yes, completely. Now one of the reasons that they started developing elevators more in you know throughout the years, trying to find some way to 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 use elevators in a more technological perspective was because they needed to move a lot of raw material like coal and lumber and stuff like that so they need to find ways to 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 make it easier you know not to have to you know hire you know 50 50 men to to start pulling stuff up when you can find a an easier way to do it in 1823 mm -hmm. two architects in london named burton and homer were able to build and operate a tourist attraction, which they called the Ascending Room, which was able to elevate customers to a considerable height in the center of London so that they were able to have a panoramic view of the city. 
Okay. The first electric elevator, when, okay, we, we talked about before the idea of an elevator. When do you think the first electric elevator was, was invented? Mm, well, electricity would have been late 19th century. So I'm going to guess somewhere in the late 1800s, maybe 1880, 1890. 1880. Perfect. There you go. A, a, a man named Werner von Siemens. Uh, built Siemens, the first, the ones Siemens. Who are, I, I wonder if he's connected. I, I'm assuming he's connected. Yeah, I'm assuming there is a connection. He created the first electric elevator in Germany. And then after that, there were a whole bunch of other people who, who made different changes to it. You know, where uh, a man named Frank Sprague, Sprague, I don't know how to pronounce that. He added the whole idea of floor control, automatic operation, acceleration control, and other safety devices and stuff like that. That within 10 years, Sprague had 584 different elevators installed in his, you know, from his company around the, around the area, which is just amazing. So, okay, let, let's talk about elevator doors. Okay, we're, we're about to get to, to the elevator doors here. So why, why do they have doors on elevators? Well, we don't want people falling through now, do we? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, pretty much. So elevator doors are used to prevent riders from falling into, entering, or tampering with anything in the shaft. You know, I, it, mm-hmm. it might have actually helped John McLean if there were no doors on the elevators in this building, because then he would be able to to maybe get into the to the elevator shaft a little easier. With, but we got weeks until we need to talk about that. You know, the, the well, you know, one thing that, that you and I know we kind of I don't want to belabor this too too much longer, but I do know that some of the older buildings that didn't have the automation yet, literally it was a job as the person who ran the elevator. It was their job to stop and start and open the doors. They literally would be in the elevator as a job all day long. And so instead of you pushing a button, you'd say like at a, at a department store, uh, what, what floor ma'am, uh, lingerie. Okay. We're going to go up to level three and their job would be to control it themselves versus pushing a button. Do you think that their job was to do that in order to make sure people wouldn't fall out? <laughs> no, I mean, there was a, still a door. I'm just saying, uh, I think it's amazing when we think about that used to be a career. You would be yes. hired you did. Yeah. run the elevator. Yeah, you see that in older movies. You see that often. You, know, you see it in, even in Titanic, you know, when, they're, when, they're, when they have to get into the elevator and the, the, the guy doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to let them out. You know, when the water starts flooding into in, into the elevator shaft that they had there and stuff like that. I mean, I, I actually have a, a, a slight little story. It's 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 somewhat tragic, but uh, it's it's still something that that has you know for the for my entire life has has gone with me. You know that I've I've known the story since I was very young. My my grandfather, okay, back in the the 1940s, and this actually happened in 1944. So. Um, as you know, and as many of the people listening know, I'm I'm a religious Jew. So in the 1930s and 1940s, there were laws in America that people had to work. It was a six-day work week. You had to work on Saturdays also. But for us, being religious Jews, we don't work on Saturday. So a lot of Jews had trouble finding jobs because people wouldn't hire them to, to work in their companies because of this, because they wanted them to also work on Saturday, even though the you know, as Jews, they're willing to work on Sunday, but Sunday, you know, was is was is the 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 day in America where 
you don't work, you know, you couldn't work. So uh, a lot of Jews, what they would do is they would be hired for a job on Sunday or Monday, and they would tell, you know, their employer, yes, I'm going to work on Saturday. And then they wouldn't come to work on Saturday, they get fired, and then they'd have to find a new job the following week. So my grandfather, who was 43 at the time of, of this story that we're telling, so he was working in a furniture store, furniture factory in Albany, New York. And he made a deal with the owners that what he would do is, is he wouldn't work on Saturdays, but he would make up the hours the rest of the week. He would, you know, he would come in early, he would stay late, stuff like that to make up all those hours so that they still got all the hours. And they agreed. And one morning he came to work early and got into the elevator or pushed the button for the elevator. The elevator doors opened. He stepped in and unfortunately there was no elevator there. And he fell down uh, oh. one flight of stairs. Or one flight, you know, he fell down one flight and he actually, the fall didn't kill him, but he hit his head on one of the metal beams on the bottom and he was in a coma for a few weeks and then, then he passed away from that. But, you know, I've always known this story, you know, and for me, you know, here we're talking about elevators, we're talking about doors and safety and stuff like that. So here, you know, this was in the 1940s where something like that uh, could still happen, you know, I mean. It, it always reminds me of the uh, L.A. Law episode where Rosalind Shays gets into the elevator, but that was just to get rid of the character, you know. <laughs> wow. But no, and, and you for know, me, you think of that for, as more of a movie device, but yes. obviously it, it gets used as a movie device because it used to happen. Yeah, of course, hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, again, this is part of something, part of my life. I mean, this is you know, we're talking about something that happened eighty, almost you know, was it seventy, seventy eight years ago? So. You know, it's not like it, it had any effect. I, there's nothing I could have done anything about it at the time, you know, but it, it's a story right. that, I mean, for me, the idea that, that my grandfather was was so willing to, the, the religion was so important to him that he was willing to, to you know, to, to do something out of the ordinary to be able to, you know, to continue to be able to support his family. You know, he, he probably mm -hmm. had less time to be with his family because of that. You know, because he was going in early every day and coming in late and coming home late and everything like that. So yeah, started started to get on that dour note. That, <laughs> right. Well, I was saying even at that time, the idea of an eight-hour workday that hadn't come around yet. So you were right. probably still looking at longer than eight, certainly. Maybe. Yeah. So he may have been doing twelve to fourteen-hour days. Very possible. Completely. But uh, yeah. Okay. That, again, I, I it's just it was apropos. <laughs> As opposed to the guy who's guarding the elevators, who seems to be more intent on doing his nails. Yes, 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 yes. yes. So we'll, we'll get there. That's a tough job. So, so McLean <laughs> then nods to the, to the to the first guard and starts walking towards, you know, the 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 bank of elevators. You know, and he first he says thanks to the thanks for the help, and then continues walking. And we can, we can see for some reason I, I found this really funny next to the guard. We see that he has some sort of something doing a countdown because it says 31, 30, 29, right next to him. So I wonder if that's like the elevators, you know, so they can see what 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 floor the elevators are on, or it could be something else. Yeah. I don't know, but it was it's just funny. That's you know, what I he thought. mentions he mentions to get off at thirty, but okay, so why is the elevator starting at thirty one? If everyone in the building is only on the thirtieth floor. So what's what's happening on the thirty fourth? I guess we'll have to get to that later in the later later in in the, the movie when we try and figure out what happens on each of these floors. You may find out, yeah, you may find out for those folks who have never seen this movie, like your guest next week. 
that there are just because the party's on the 30th and the guard may have been told everyone's on the 30th, there's actually more activity taking place. No, not yet. <laughs> well, not yet. Technically, <laughs> yet because you heard uh, you'll well, I can only tell you because I know the movie Inside Out. You have to go to different floors to fax documents, so yes. obviously employees find out later are still in fact working yes. even though there's a party. Yes, correct, correct. Which we we actually figured out that that. Uh, although all the taglines of this movie say this happens on Christmas Eve, this does not take place until Christmas Eve. Okay, Christmas Eve in 1988 was Saturday night, the 24th. Okay, so I was mm -hmm. I, I went into starting this project with that knowledge that you know here we're on the 24th. Uh, it's the 24th at night. But if you think about it, there's no reason why everyone is working on Saturday at this point. Okay, and why would John show up on Saturday to go spend Christmas Eve with his with his kids as opposed to showing up on Friday? So my assumption is that we're now on the 23rd, not the 24th. Unless you think or, that's wrong. I, I will <laughs> counter you just because the movie came out in 88. I don't think it matters the year. I think just because it was released in 88, it could be any year. It's just the the story we're being told is on Christmas Eve, whatever day this happens to be. If it's it may be a work day, because obviously they were talking about closing deals and faxing documents we'll get to. But to me, I never thought of it as having just because the movie came out in 88 that it had to take place in 88, because in my mind, except for a few things, it could take place today. It could. But, you know, usually when you watch a movie, you think that it's taking place in the present. So if this, mm -hmm. if the movie came out in August or July of of 1988, so the assumption is that it takes place in December 88. That that that's the assumption. Whether it's correct or not is a different story. Okay. I mean, later on course, we'll have a point where have where Takagi will say right. It could be they would have had to have filmed it in 87. So what was uh, Christmas Eve in 87? If I remember correctly, that was that was actually Friday night. Oh, there so you go. It, it is it is possible. We figured no, it out. <laughs> but but Takagi also says, you know, it doesn't matter if I give you the code by in tomorrow morning when they wake up in Tokyo, they're gonna they're gonna change it. So do right. they change the code on Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings? I don't know. Well, sure, because they don't believe in Christmas anyway, right? I mean, secondly, if they're executives in security and they realize that security's been breached, you would think a corporation this big would be monitoring their operations twenty four seven. You would think, wouldn't you? So <laughs> I would. <laughs> we'll have to wait and find out. And and then on the other side of where the these floor numbers are are appearing, we see a whole bunch of buttons in, on the console, and you know it, it actually seems quite complicated for the for the desk guard to have to deal with all of those various buttons and stuff like that. You know. So yeah, just looks uh, interesting. So then uh, McLean. Starts uh, walking down the, the the hallway, and you know he's he begins to whistle as he goes along, and then he mm -hmm. he, he passes and he sees he, he goes through like a, a security under a security gate. It looks like a, a what's the word portcullis, something you would see uh, in portcullis, what you would see in like uh, castles and stuff like that. I mean, obviously we're going to see this later, but it's it's very interesting that they show it to us at this point. You know, mm -hmm. you can see it because it's something that will come down at some point. You know, now when you were yep. in the 20th Century Fox building, did you notice if there really was a 
Porticulus or not? I don't, honestly, and, and this is the sad thing, I don't remember because my gut instinct was they just did this as a set decoration piece because I think, I don't remember where the bars, if this is where the bars come down later in the movie because I know they put bars across the doors themselves mm-hmm. versus in the interior hallway. Right. Okay, could be. But it, it's just fun, you know, that, they, that you can see it behind him that he, like, walks under it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then he's looking up and he sees the the, the very security cameras and stuff like that, which, you know, it's just funny, you know, 34 years after looking at the type of security cameras they were using in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they, yeah, they look quite archaic. Yeah. Uh, can I tell you something? When I first saw this, and every time I watch it, even though I know who's the who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, who are the main players, I love how John McTiernan, I mean, we're only, you know, basically past the opening credits at 10 plus minutes into the movie. This guy leaning like he is looking down and then he doesn't really move his head. He just sort of looks with his eyes up. It does give you a sense of suspicion for me as a watcher. When I watch it, I go, what's he up to? Why is the guard? Why is the guy who's supposedly working there? Is he part of it? It seems almost projecting or it's almost telegraphing something's about to happen even though he's not part of it it automatically gives me a sense of unease right at the very beginning and for no other reason other than camera movement and actor just the way he sort of looks up and it's to me it's almost ominous like and john mcclain the reverse shot he's kind of like the hell are you looking at exactly but he (laughs) takes note of it yeah so the the actor who plays this guard his name is uh, fred lerner he was born on February 2nd, 1935, and he passed away on the 15th of July, 2009, at the age of 74. IMDb doesn't say what he passed away of. He has 32 different movie credits, 81 TV credits, but he's not an actor. He's a – what do you think his job is? If he's not an actor, what is he? Uh, set decorator. <laughs> he's a stuntman. He's a stuntman. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. He's a stuntman. He has 81 TV credits as a stuntman, 42 – sorry. Oh, let me say that again. He has 42 TV stunt uh, credits and 83 movie stunt credits. He was also the second assistant director on four different movies. One of them is Better Off Dead, which I will give a shout-out to uh, Curtis for the Better Off Dead minute. Hopefully that will come back at some point. Okay, he was he was also the stunt coordinator on that movie. You know, there's it's it's just fun seeing these little things that you know you have all these these stuntmen. I mean, we talked about it in Clean Shade Armor was also that the, the the stuntman, the guy who was driving the car, screaming at them that they're going the wrong way. He was also a, a assistant director from for like tons of movies. You know, as the stunt coordinator because that that's what you know the second the, the second camera crew. They're the ones who are doing all of the, you know, the pickup shots and stuff like that, where you don't need the actors themselves. So you're, it's mostly when they're doing stunts. So they're going to have, you know, someone dealing with it there. So then, like, what do you think he's doing? It, you said earlier that you think he's cleaning his nails, but it, the way that he's holding his his fingers, it doesn't look like he's cleaning his nails. It looks to me that maybe he's like, you know, I don't know, rolling a cigarette or something like that, because his well. His fingers are numb, and I got no. He's he's definitely scraping something, and I almost got the sense because you don't see his thumb. 
that he maybe he's using his finger to scratch the cuticle on the back of his thumb or push it back, but he's maybe. they've got him doing just some hand business to make it look like more than just standing like a statue. And then again, it gives me pause. I look at it and go, "There's a there's something foreboding about his posture and the way he looks at him." Yeah. Okay, that's true. And so then uh, you know, McLean gives him a little nod as he continues to walk towards the elevators. And then we, we get a great shot that's like a, a an ex, uh, uh, shot from above that shows, you know, McLean standing there by the, the elevators and you see the guard in the background, you know, just leaning against the wall. But you also, the, the great thing about this shot is you get to see all of the various uh, cameras. There, there are a number of security cameras that, that are around this area here. You know, they're, they're, Nakatomi is very into security for, for obvious reasons. You know, we, we know why. But, you know, I wonder if John wonders at this point, what's the reason that there's so many of these, you know, cameras around? Who knows? And did, did you see that in the background, there's a, what looks like a gong symbol? It's a very, it's not the Nakatomi symbol. I, I, I'm not able to figure out what the symbol is, but it's like this big round gong with uh, like three curved um black lines around it or something like that. And you can actually see it, it as the shot switch. You can see that it's in both, it's on both sides. You see it like behind yeah. the security guard and you see it on the other side. So it's some sort of, of, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's some sort of Japanese symbol, you know, for samurai or. Uh... Yeah. I'd be curious what they did uh, for that. Cause it's obviously like a metal, almost a statue piece, a, a decorative piece, almost uh, like it's an, uh, an, an eye, like you have the circle, and you've got a straight line, but then yeah. you've got the two curved lines, almost like it's an eyeball watching you. Yeah. No idea what that is, though. No clue. <laughs> All right. So then what, you know, John pushes the button for the elevator, waiting for the elevator to come. And then he takes another look at the guard. The The light comes on that the elevator is showing up. And then the shot switches to the parking garage where we get to see Argyle, you know, pull into the parking garage. And you just get, we get a few seconds of the limo driving through the parking garage. You see that it's still light outside, even though it shouldn't be light. Okay. Because of the, the, actually, you never know because of the time sunset. Well, when you, when you walk through the lobby, you could still sense it was sunset through the windows of the lobby. And if this is supposed to be taking place simultaneously or within moments, it, it, to me, it matches time of day. No, but it doesn't because here it looks a lot brighter. It doesn't look like it's dusk. You know, when, when John is getting out of the limo, you see that it feels like it's dusk. It's just about to become nighttime. Hmm. Well, I, I guess and I, I wasn't here for the minutes of the limo. I'm talking about when he's walking through the lobby and you can see the sun uh, earlier in the minute coming through the lobby windows. Right, right. right. No, that I know. So, so that seems to match what we're seeing. But I will tell you this. It, it does look more like dawn than dusk based on the way the lighting is reflecting in the windows of the uh, – of the building itself, as right. if this may have been an early shot of the morning rather than last shot of the day. It could be, could be. I mean, sunset on December twenty fourth, nineteen eighty eight, or on the twenty third, was at four fifty in the afternoon. So you know, we're not we're not at night yet. We're still we're still dealing with uh, early evening. You know, it's, it, I I came across this numerous times in the plane and Donald goes, I don't know why they didn't pay enough attention to that fact. At the time, you know, in Plain Street, you also have, you know, where, where sunset, because it's taking place in the winter, sunset is pretty early 
but they never really acknowledge it. They make it seem as if things are are happening later in, you know, that that the sun is setting much later. But well, they got to maximize their shoot day. No, for they sure. Shoot in the in the summer. That's for sure. <laughs> but still, you know, <laughs> don't know. Right. I can tell you it's cool because the parking garage, unlike what you would think of, a lot of buildings, not all of them, but a lot of buildings, you think of the parking garage as being under the building. And this is actually across from the building because you see the Nakatomi building actually in the background Correct. as the limo was backing into a spot. Yeah, it's and, and by and the way, it's ground level. When I got done touring, when I got done touring the lobby, I went and I drove all through the parking garage, everywhere in here, and I actually even pulled into that back spot and I mirrored looking at the shot just to see what it would look like from my own perspective. That is so cool. Now, first of all, it, it shows that it, Argyle is a, is, a, is a terrible driver by the way that he he parks here. Because he's not park, he doesn't park straight. I mean, obviously there are no cars there, so you know you don't need to park straight. But you'd still think. I mean, for me, I'm I'm anal retentive when it comes to parking. I can't not park, you know, <laughs> between lines. You know, it doesn't matter if there's no other cars around. <laughs> but I think it also has to do with Does the fact Argyle that Argyle strike you as being OCD? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I mean, we we saw on Friday when when he was parking outside of the, you know, when he was dropping him off, that he also didn't park well. So. You know, you you can see that <laughs> no. you can see that Argyle, a divorce white, white, was not someone who you know was driving limos. <laughs> Doesn't know how to park a limo. <laughs> no. Yeah. But in fairness, there's nobody. There's no other car there, so why why not just pull in and take up a couple of spots and relax? Yeah. You're just waiting to see whether or not he's going to score with the lady or not. Correct. But, but what I love is is that when he's driving along, you see that he passes four golf carts. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, what do you need golf carts for in Nakatomi? To to bring them into the into the lobby is not going to help you. It's not like you can drive. It's not like you're in Disneyland or something like that where you know there's a lot of open space for you to drive a golf cart. <laughs> you know they're they're not going to drive the golf cart into the well, into security. the elevator. They can take it and tour around the building and and do an outside observance of the property rather than walk the outside. They got a little golf cart. Could also be grounds crew golf carts. If they've uh, done for the rest of the day, they may use that to go about to keep the uh, grounds uh, up to date, checking on the trees and the plants and the grass. So it could be groundskeeping as well. Right. Okay. Makes sense. So what do you know about golf carts? A little bit. Uh, I've got friends who get them because they live in subdivisions where they they use those to, to go down to the pool. Or I know I've got friends who golf. I do not. So um, I've done a few uh, video shoots where we borrowed the golf cart for the premises to be able to get to our spots more quickly, load up our gear rather than have to hand carry it. So um, that's about it. Right. So a golf cart is a vehicle that was originally designed to carry two golfers and their golf clubs around a golf course. Uh, with, with less effort than having having to actually walk, so they now have golf, golf carts with that have that are two seaters, four seaters, and six seaters. Okay, and they're usually used to uh, move people short distances at speeds of less than 15 miles per hour, in general. Okay, golf carts. If you want to buy one, you can buy one anywhere between a thousand dollars and twenty thousand dollars, depending obviously on whether it's new and what what type of uh, extras it has. And stuff like that. You know, how many people mm-hmm. you want to have with it? There are golf carts that have, uh, you know, windshields. They have ball cleaners. There are golf carts <laughs> that have cooler trays, uh, upgraded motor or speed controls in order to make the, the car go a little faster. They have lift kits. Now, 
you being from Georgia, do you know what the law is? What from what age are you allowed to drive a golf cart in Georgia? You know, I don't know what the age is because I see plenty of kids who are well under the driving age driving them. Um, I think a lot's going to depend on whether you're in a subdivision versus a city or county street, but I'm going to say 14 and up. Okay, so in Georgia, Alabama, California, Kansas, Kentucky, Rhode Island, Vermont, and South Carolina, those eight states, okay, you are allowed to drive a golf cart from the age of 13. Oh, I was close. Yeah, you were very close. Okay. Very close. Very close. And uh, most U.S. states. Now, I've, I'll tell you this. I've seen lots of kids that were not 13 <laughs> <laughs> driving golf carts. So just pull them over, you know. <laughs> so most, most U.S. states, the, the minimal level is what you were said, either 14 or 15 years old, including Florida, which is a state that is known for having many areas which can use golf carts. What was the when do you think the first use of a modern golf cart was? Mm, no idea. Okay, so the, the first electric golf cart was custom made in 1932. Okay, there's a man named J.K. Wadley from Texarkana, Texas, Arkansas. He was in LA and he saw that uh, they had a, a an electric cart that was moving around senior citizens to a grocery store. And he said, wow, that's a great idea. Why don't I try and use that for golf? So between <laughs> the 30s and 50s, uh, most people who used them were people who had disabilities who could not walk far. And then after the 50s, it became widely accepted by all of the uh, lazy golf people. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. That they, they would start using them, you know, all over the golf course. There are numerous golf, golf cart communities around the world which are places which you can only use golf carts. You know, you're not allowed to have cars in those specific areas and stuff like that. There's a place called Peachtree City, Georgia. Okay, are you familiar with that yep. place? South of, south of Atlanta, uh, and it grew up really, really fast and became a, known as a golf cart community. Yes, which it is. And children who are age 12 and over are allowed to operate a golf cart there as long as they have a parent, grandparent, or guardian in the front seat with them. There are even two high schools in the area, McIntosh High School and Stars Mill High School, which have student golf cart mm -hmm. parking lots on their campuses. Then you have a whole bunch of islands, which which only which restrict the, the use of only golf carts as vehicles there. There are places in Florida, which for instance have, there's a retirement community named The Villages in Florida, which has over 70,000 mm -hmm. people in it. And they have a golf cart trail system that is more than 100 miles of, of road, I guess you can call it, for people to, to drive around in this uh, community. There are tropical islands in Belize, which uh, have golf carts as the major form of road transportation, and you can rent them as tourists. And then there is... In uh, Hong Kong, there's an area called Discovery Bay, which doesn't allow any use of private cars except for 520 golf carts that they have in the area. So, mm. yeah, a lot of fun. So they have golf cars here. They never show up in this movie again. We will see them when we eventually do Die Hard 2. There is a golf cart that's, <laughs> that's very integral to the movie, but we'll, we'll have to wait until we get there. But not, not, not in the Nakatomi building. We don't. I don't believe we see golf carts again. Who knows? Maybe we'll be surprised along the way and and actually see them 
somewhere along the way. <laughs> so then we, we go back okay. to John. We see him in the elevator whistling and we hear sounds outside. We hear people laughing, chattering, making a lot of noise. Then it opened, the doors open and we are, we get, we are revealed a large Christmas tree, which is uh, lit up, which earlier we saw it and it wasn't lit up. So I guess, uh, you know, the, the clock struck five and they decided to light it up or something like that. <laughs> Cocktail time. Yes. End of the day, party starts. Yes. I love this shot. Uh, I know you've got a lot of detail of some of the the background that we've talked about. Cinematically, hearing the music play, which is um, uh, Brandon Berg's Concerto Number no. 3, you hear, obviously, a string quartet of some kind playing, and it opens, it sounds upscale, it sounds fancy. You've got a floor-to-ceiling Christmas tree in a large room, as instead of it being like your Star Wars wipe, the door acts as sort of the yes. wipe opening as you enter the room. And I love the shot. It's just, and again, it's one of those little small filmmaking mm-hmm. details that's to paint the picture of our next setting or our next set piece. Yes, completely. Right. And that's pretty much how the, this minute ends. Do you have anything else you want to say about this minute before we get into the, the script and the novel? No, I will tell you uh, when we get to it uh or whatever we're doing for the the rest of the week. Um, the one thing that does date the movie that we'll note throughout hairstyles yes. and and women's women's shoulder pads yes. definitely a product of <laughs> mid to late eighties. Yes, we'll we'll get into that later this week for sure. So the the script has a few little there's there's one minor discrepancy, but but one of the great things about the script is is that they're they're very descriptive about things that are happening. So I'll give a quick read of some of the things here. So it says, as McLean walks away from the guard, first of all, the line the guard says about, uh, you know, get off where you hear the noise is not in the original script. So very interesting that the, that they would ad lib that in there, you know, which as we pointed out earlier today, it doesn't really make sense. So <laughs> whoever thought of that idea was, was a little wrong. Get off where you hear the noise. So then it's as, as he's walking away from, from the first guard, it says McLean nods, moves off. He moves to the elevators, and as he does, his experienced eye takes in another security guard patrolling a different area. Patrolling. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> several high-tech cameras and sensors, which are cleverly worked into the decor of the lobby. And then it says McLean reacts with bored professionalism, nods to the guard. And then McLean actually says to the guard, he goes, lots of hardware. And then the guard shrugs, and McLean gets into the elevator. And then it says, McLean hits 30 and reacts to the hyper-powered speed with which he rises. He rotates his head, getting out the travel cricks. As he approaches the 30th floor, we hear a tremendous thumping, throbbing noise. McLean stops and listens before he realizes it's the party. As the doors open, the noise attacks Mm. us. So that's... That's uh, it, it's a nice descriptive way of explaining it. There's no question about that. Uh, I do like that they chose to rather than having thumping almost uh, pop or hip hop or really heavy bass music, they went more for classical. I think that sets a much better tone. Yes. Corporation for sure for the for, for the for the um, for the high class um, aspect of it that we're talking that we talked right, about. Yeah, right. I, I, for sure. Word, yeah. It, it establishes them that they're not a fly-by-night corporation. They are, they've been around a while. There's a history. There's a sense of – it's a classical music. There's a sense of class to this. Yes, for sure. Money. 
<laughs> That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Absolutely. But not necessarily in an ostentatious way, but in a legacy way. They've been around a while. This isn't a fly-by-night. This isn't a startup. Right. So at least that's how that's I, true. I I agree. I agree. In the the novel, so this is based on a novel by uh, Roderick Thorpe, which was called Nothing Lasts Forever, which there are many, many differences between them because, you know, the, the character is older. He's visiting his daughter as opposed to visiting his wife and stuff like that. But the, the only difference at this point in the book, I mean, the last two weeks we discussed a few other differences, but here that he gets in the elevator and goes to the 32nd floor instead of the 30th floor. It's a very minor discrepancy, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see over the course of the movie and how the novel, you know, plays things of which floors he's on and stuff like that. Because there also, it's not the Nakatomi mm-hmm. building, it's a, it's, it's an oil uh, company building, the oil company's name is Klaxon, Klaxon Oil. So, every Monday we have a segment called Die Hard on a Monday, where my guests will give their top five uh, die hard doppelganger or die hard genre type films. So what have, what have you got for us, Alan? All right. We're doing a reverse countdown. We talked about it before we went. Yeah. So my number five inspired by, or motivated by the success of die hard. How do you go wrong with Nicholas cage and con air die hard on a prisoner of transport yeah. <laughs> con air. Number four, do you want me? I'm just doing all Go four. Ahead. You're not doing one with me. I'm just doing one with you. Okay. Number four. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait until the final episode to hear me give my five. Yeah. Okay. All right. Number four for me, Sylvester Stallone, Cliffhanger. I thought that one was an interesting take on uh, the story, especially a flawed uh, hero who has doubts after losing somebody early in the movie. Number three, a movie, a more modern flick, but I loved it. Olympus has fallen. I'm a big fan of that one. It's it's so good. Oh, I, I really enjoy. It. I like a movie that you can buy the premise even when it's a fantastical. There's no way this could happen story, and yet you still buy right. it. That that's the key. Because there's lots of movies out there. Halfway through, you go, "This is so stupid. Not, this is just dumb." If they keep you from saying those words, then they're doing a good Correct. job. Number two, we return to Nicolas Cage, but we join him with Sean Connery, The Rock. And for me, the closest you get to Die Hard on a Plane, Air Force One. Very cool. All right. Thank you for that. So, Alan, you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you? Sure. We uh, we did an entertainment podcast very similar to this for two seasons called The Wilder Ride. Um, the, the podcast still exists, but season one, we dedicated to breaking down the movie Young, Young Frankenstein one minute at a time. Season two followed it up with Blazing Saddles. We changed it up to more of a talk show format for seasons three and four, bringing on guests, talking about movies and culture and books and things that we're doing and trying to put a spotlight on what other people around us are doing. And so far, our season five has been on an extended hiatus due to my co-host getting remarried and deciding that being with somebody you love is a lot more fun than being with your partner. (laughs) Um, I think that – well, one second. (laughs) Then your what partner? (laughs) It sounded really interesting the way you oh, said that. Then your <laughs> podcast partner. Sorry, yeah. your podcast partner. In other words, this used to be a, a, a duet, and then it became a, a triumvirate, and now it's a duet, but on the other side, they're doing the duet, and I'm just sitting here as the third wheel. You know, as, as you and I both know, it's, it's important to, 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 to find the right person to click with. So, you know, good. Absolutely. I, no, I, 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 I wish the best of luck to Walt for that. <laughs> 
yes, it's all tongue in cheek. It's all good because honestly, we do this as a hobby. We do this for fun. We do it seriously. We love what we do. But yes, real life, real people need to come first. Usually, yeah. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> I guess it depends on the person. Exactly. So. Anyway, but that's it. You can find it there. Um, I do a political podcast, but for folks that like nothing but uh, entertainment, you would probably not enjoy it. <laughs> but if you're interested, you could always reach out to me directly. Um, you can find me at The Alan Sanders Show. Just do a Google search for that on social media. You'll find me. All right. Excellent. And finding me is very simple. Just do a quick search for Movie Rob Minute. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. And you can go to our website, MovieRobMinute.com. So until tomorrow, yippee-ki-yay. Yippee-ki-yay.